But then once I started getting older and reading literature, I was like, yes, like this speaks to my soul. I want all of these words. I loved, I loved writers that would use words that they just kind of made up or like didn't make any sense, but you understood what they meant. Like, it's a terrible example, but Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. he made up all sorts of weird words and he, he was a weird person. But I just thought, oh, you can do things that don't make any sense, but that make sense and you can make them make sense. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 198 of the Commando Voice. Today, I speak with an author, wife, and mother. Please welcome Alicia Dean. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they're going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. I uh, hope you guys are doing well. Um, hope you guys had a good weekend. Uh, my wife was out of town this weekend, and so it was me and the kiddos, and they were hyped up on Halloween candy. And uh, yeah, so it was an interesting weekend. Um, actually, it was our first Saturday in two months, I think, uh, where we didn't have a soccer game, one of our kids' soccer games. So um, yeah, it was, it was good. Um, I definitely like kept going back to my bed on Saturday, just laying in bed. Um, I was like, I should get up and do something. And I was like, I can't, I'm just too tired. So, uh, yeah, a weird, weird weekend. Um, but good. Uh, I think it was a good kind of recoup. Uh, we also had the taste of the marketplace on Friday evening. So thank you for those who came out. Uh, I don't have final numbers, but we raised a few hundred bucks for the, um, Stanwood Commando Food Bank. Uh, so thank you all who participated in that. We really appreciate that. Uh, and we're excited to give that out, uh, get that to them. Um, so yeah. Uh, and it was a good event. It was, it's always a fun event for people to come out, hang, eat some food. Um, yeah, just have a good time. So I'm glad a lot of people came out for it. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, that was my week in a nutshell. Uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry. Uh, last week, um, I did mention um, there's there's information that's going to be coming out here. Um, this is episode 198, and on episode 200, I'm going to be talking. Um, so, um, yeah, just stay tuned for that. Um, got more information coming uh, at that point. But today, uh, <laughs> I'm interviewing um, Alicia, um, Alicia Luca Dean, um, or Alicia Dean, um, as I said, sorry, <laughs> I'm like dying. Um, <clears throat> as I said in the intro, author, wife, mother, um, but her book, um, she's been writing different books and, and things like that. Um, she's, as you'll learn in the podcast, she's really enjoyed writing for a very long time. She's been a bookworm for her entire life. And uh, so writing was something she always wanted to be able to do uh, and, and to do. And so she even started writing a book that she did when she was eight years old, um, just as like a project that she wanted to do. Um, but she actually has some, uh, she has published books now. Um, one of those being um, a big book that we will talk about, uh, the Unt Until the Darkness Turns to Light. 
Um, and so we'll get into that, kind of the background of that book and why she wrote it um, and why it's more than just a novel, but it actually has a lot of real life uh, inspiration behind it as well. And so we're going to get into all of that. Uh, before that, she actually wrote a writing prompt book um, that she just put so many different pieces and things into it that made it a really um, valuable book or resource for a lot of writers. And that's actually still her number one selling book. Um, and so uh, we'll have a link to that as well in the show notes. So, um, yeah, I, you know, if you guys have been following the Commando Voice for a while, we've actually I've actually interviewed quite a few different authors. And I always find each one brings a different perspective. Um, I've, I've interviewed people that are very structured in their writing. I've interviewed people that just let it flow, let the, let the pen flow. Uh, and, um, they just write from their heart and they just keep going until their, their, it ends. Uh, and everyone in between as well, where they kind of are kind of a mix between the two. And so, um, I love, you know, it's that same idea behind like artists as well. Um, the different artists I've interviewed on the podcast, some new from a very young age, like I'm going to be an artist. That's what I'm going to do. Um, some didn't start till after retirement. They're like, you know, I'm going to get into art and found out they're really good at it. Uh, and so, you know, writing is an art, right? It's an art form. And so when you talk to people that do this um, as, as a primary means for them, um, you know, you're going to get different perspectives. And what's neat is being able to see that each one can be su successful. Um, so uh, all that, uh, we get into all that and more in today's interview. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Alicia Dean. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice. Today, I'm here with an author, wife, mother, and co-Islander. Welcome to the podcast, Alicia Luca Dean. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Alicia. Okay. Well, I, like you said, I grew up on Camino. Um, my family moved here when I was about five. Uh, my parents built a house in the South End, and I lived here until I was about 16, almost 17. Okay. Yeah. And um, uh, after that, we moved to Arlington and um, just... Uh, there, I'm from a big family. I'm the oldest of nine kids. Okay. So that typical, like big <laughs> family that homeschools, that's, that's me. I'm the oldest though. So I'm the boss for okay. sure. Yeah. I'm very good at being bossy. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, uh, married to a great guy. His name's Johnny Dean and he's hilarious. He's a pastor. Um, and we have three kids and unfortunate for my husband we have three pets as well okay yeah <laughs> we have a dog a cat and a bearded dragon that was gifted to us wow. but he's actually the cutest little pet yeah nice. I was terrified of him at first but he's super <laughs> chill yeah he's super chill um my son my oldest son bear he literally snuggles with him it's really <laughs> funny so yeah just a busy life I, I'm also a homeschool mom Okay. I, I didn't think I would be a homeschool mom, but it just fits really well with our lifestyle. Um, and it just, our kids love it and it, it just works for us. Yeah. At least, at least for this season, we're, we're kind of like open to whatever or yep. however the future looks every year's, we kind of just take it one year at a time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, and yeah, as our kids get older too, if they're, you know, interested in 
going to school or doing, I don't know, whatever, we'll just talk about it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. We've definitely had that approach because every year has almost been very different educationally for our kids from what they need and how they're learning. And, yeah. Um, you know, our two daughters have... Um, uh, dyslexia and and so okay. we've had to work through that so then it's like more time on them uh, you know one of my kids really gets things right off the bat like he doesn't have to study he's one of those annoying kids that like gets yes. it the first time yep. and um so he's always like oh it's so easy I don't know why you guys are having trouble with this like, buddy you can't do that your sisters <laughs> don't see it the same way so uh, you know but we've had to adjust and change for all of them and we're like this is what we're doing right now we may change again in the future. Like it's just, yeah, we take it a year by year. Yep. For sure. Kids. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, what was it like for you growing up on, uh, Camino Island? Well, so I, I actually, for the most part, enjoyed it. Um, we had a great little neighborhood. We felt pretty safe there. Um, and, just coming from big family, like every two years there would be another baby. So just the family's constantly growing. And then being homeschooled was interesting. <laughs> it, I mean, it was all I knew, but, um, I have this theory that all homeschooling moms are not morning people. And that's like 80% <laughs> of the reason that they homeschool. And, um, which I, I is true for me. Like, I'm not a morning person. I just cannot imagine, like, waking my kids up early every morning for school. And I tell my kids that when they, when they complain about how much homework they have to do or whatever. I'm like, you right. guys don't even know. <laughs> you don't even know. And I try to make it sound as horrible as possible. Like, you have to make yourself breakfast and make yourself lunch and go wait out in the rain for the school bus. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of the stuff my, my mom would tell us, too. We were like, oh, my gosh, that sounds terrible. Like, we don't want to do that. But um, I, I've always been a reader and an independent learner, and I love learning. Mm-hmm. So homeschooling was it worked really well for me. Yeah. I, I would just go read like the whole year of my history book for fun <laughs> in like the first month of school. So I was super nerdy. Um, and I would just, I would just read everything. And, um, we had a lot of books because we're a homeschool, homeschool family. And my favorite thing to do would be to just to organize the bookshelves. And it would take me like the whole day because I would read as I was going along. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and my my siblings, especially my brother right under me, Tim, uh, he would make so much fun of me. He'd be like, you're such a nerd. All you do is read. You never go outside. For the longest time, I thought I couldn't tan because I was like, oh, I'm, I just can't get tan at all, I guess. But that's not true. I was just inside reading my whole childhood. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I would just read all the time. The, the Hardy Boys were, like, my favorite I still joke that I have a crush on Frank Hardy. He's just <laughs> a babe. And, um, yeah, uh, so love to read. And then we did the Lighthouse Co-op. Yeah. And I feel like I had a really unique experience being homeschooled because my mom is actually pretty extroverted mm-hmm. and doesn't really like to be home. So we did a ton of stuff. Yeah. Like, we were always out. We went, we went down to Seattle all the time and we were like at museums, science center, zoo, the aquarium, or we just 
walk around Seattle. We'd go to a ton of baseball games Mm -hmm. back when it was the kingdom. (laughs) And you could bring your own food in. I don't know if you, like, remember that. You could bring your own food in. Wow. We were just bringing backpacks of sandwiches. And, yeah, um, it was great. (laughs) (laughs) So much cheaper. (laughs) So much cheaper. Um, No, but... I, I really liked my homeschool experience overall. We did, it, we did a ton of stuff, which I, at the time, didn't really like because I am more introverted and I prefer just to be home, yep. whatever, in my little beanbag reading my books. <laughs> but um, the rest of my siblings seemed to really like it as well. And my mom was always like, that's it. We're leaving the house today. And so, I don't know. We were just always doing stuff. We did the co-op. We did tons of extra field trips. We did, like... Science Olympiad, I think is what it was called. Okay. It was like a science fair for homeschoolers. Um, obviously, there was just a bunch of super nerdy people there. You can just imagine it. And then me just walking around being like, I just wish I was home <laughs> the whole time. Um, and then eventually when, we, when we, um, we moved to Arlington, a huge reason for that was we started going to a school there that okay. it was like a public school for homeschooling kids. Okay. It was called Stillaguamish, uh, oh my gosh, Stillaguamish Valley Center School. Oh my gosh, SBS. Stillaguamish Valley School. Okay. Um, and it was, K, it was K through 12. And you could choose to go on Mondays and Wednesdays or Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. Or all four days. And they didn't offer every class. It was supplemental. So you could take a history class or a science class or math. And um, and then we would do other classes at home. So, like, I took piano lessons all growing up. So that was my music. Yeah. Um, and I would do that at home. And then we'd take these supplemental classes. But that's what I did from... 8th to 12th grade. Okay. And then I graduated through there. So it was kind of like half public school, half homeschool. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved that. Yeah. That was like, that was perfect for me. And um, I, I did end up going like four days a week. Okay. Eventually. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yep. So then um, as far as growing up on the island, were you like, um, did you get to, I mean, you were out and about all the time, but you weren't... Um, Did you do a lot of the bike riding and all the nature things around the island? Yes. We, so we lived about, I don't know, a mile or mile and a half south of Elder Bay grocery store. Mm -hmm. And so we would go to Camino Island State Park. Yep. And then one of those very, that very first trail before you kind of get in, that's like a loop and it's like probably half a mile. My mom would just take us there and she'd be like, run around the loop. And so I know Camino Island State Park so well, like the back of my hand, we grew, we grew up just running all over that place wild. We thought it belonged to us. Yeah. Yeah. And we would just terrify my mom trying to go deeper and deeper out in the water. She'd be like convinced that we were going to get swept away. And then one day uh, we saw a, a dogfish. You know what those are? They yeah. kind of look like sharks. Yeah. We saw one up on the beach and I was, we were like, oh my gosh, those are in the water. And then after that, we, we thought twice about how deep we went. Right. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. Nice. So, um, and, and for those of our listeners who don't know, um, the, the Lighthouse Co-op, that was a homeschool program um, that was at a church and it was one day a week. Yeah, I think it was Wednesdays. Yes. Yeah. And it was just in the mornings. 
right? Yep. And there would be th- three classes, like chapel first, and then three classes, and everything was parent-led, yep. parent-taught. Yeah. And so then whatever the parents' kind of strengths were, that's what they would teach. Yeah. One, one thing I will say, um, when I talk to other people who have been in homeschool co-ops and stuff, um, they, we were really fortunate in the Lighthouse Co-op that a lot of our the parents that we had there was many of them that were doctors or experts in certain yes. fields. And so like our, uh, you know, my, actually my chiropractor today, um, but he was a, you know, a doctor and he taught our science. And so yeah. he went way deeper than, you know, just some parent that was like, we're going to do a science class. Like yes. he really knew his stuff. And um, yeah, I took his science class. Yeah. I think for two years, yep. I think. Yeah. And then we had, um, you know, we had an inventor, who would teach some classes. So we had all these different people that had these like really deep expertise. So yes. I think sometimes I've heard of co-ops that were really just kind of parents making it up on the fly of like, yes. we're going to do a class on this, but they, it wasn't something they were actually experts in. Whereas yes. we had a lot of people that were really yes. experts. Yeah. I actually, when I talk to people about it, I say that it's, it was a little more academic than mm-hmm. most co-ops because yeah. we're part of me and my kids we're part of a co-op right now and it's less academic yeah. and part of me is like wants to like push it more toward being more academic especially more for the older kids right you know right. The, the little kids classes can be more for like fun and simple learning and right. learning how to be in a classroom mm-hmm. but um yeah I, I I mean I took the British literature and history class for a, a year, and then at the end of it, we went to England. Yeah, which was crazy. I did not want to go on that trip. By the way, my mom sort of forced me to go. Yeah, <laughs> but once I was there, I was really glad I was there. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Was that, that was that your first venture outside of the country then? Um. Yeah. Bes- I mean, besides Canada. Okay. Yeah, I'd never, I'd never like been to the East Coast or anything like, like that. I'd been. My family did go on a road trip when I was about 12 and we went kind of like, I don't know. We went to like eight different States. So that yeah. was good, but no, definitely first time out of to Europe. And yeah. then, I mean, yeah, it was a great experience. We, we went at the kind of the height of like mad cow disease. And so mm. there wasn't a lot of touristy stuff. A lot of it was shut down. Like, especially the outdoor stuff, like we could drive by Stonehenge, but we couldn't walk to it. Okay. Um, so they really wanted to keep um, dirt, like and hikers and, and wa- like people off the ground, right. I guess, essentially. And then I remember we we rented this little van and we would drive over these big mats in the road, just filled with like I mean probably like rubbing alcohol or something, um, just to disinfect your tires so you weren't spreading it. And wow, yeah, it was it was interesting. Yeah. Weird time. It was a weird time. But we went and um, we just, we made the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So how did you get started in uh, writing? Um, what what was kind of, is this something that like, even as a kid, like you did a lot of reading. Was it something you're like, oh, I want to do this? Or did that kind of come later on? So <clears throat> I have wanted to be a writer since I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. And I wrote my first book at eight. It was nice. called The Test, and I still have it. Nice. Yeah, I drew my horrible little crayon drawings. I've always been a terrible artist. 
I can barely draw a stick figure running. That's like, my abilities. That's yep. it's, ter- it's just like I, I'm I'm a creative person, but I cannot draw for the life of me. <laughs> um, I also just don't care about practicing it. So I know people will say, "Oh, you have to practice." Like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, r- writing was the only thing that I ever was okay with practicing. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I played piano growing up, hated practicing. Right. Hated it. Um, which is funny because I I quit taking piano lessons when I was 16 because I didn't want to be in any more recitals for the love of God. <laughs> <laughs> and now I play like at my church yeah. every week in front of like hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really funny. It's come full circle. Yep. Yeah. The joke's on me. Um, and now I do practice that I don't mess up in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. Right. But writing was the only thing that I really cared about. And I wasn't good at it for sure. I wasn't good at it for a long time, actually. Um, and I was just, I think part of it was just because I was so sheltered and just even the books that I read growing up, they were like very simple books. Like the Hardy Boys, that's probably like third or fourth grade yeah. reading level. Um and then uh, lots of, like, Christian books and then um, Jeanette Oki books, which are just, I'm sure you've never read any of them, <laughs> but they're very girly, like, Western Christian romance novels. They're, oh, my gosh. I think I read all of those. Yeah. Um, but then once I started getting older and reading literature, I was like, yes, like, this speaks to my soul. I want all of these words. I loved, I loved writers that would use words that they just kind of made up or like didn't make any sense, but you understood what they meant. Like it's a terrible example, but Lewis Carroll who wrote Alice in Wonderland, Mm -hmm. he made up all sorts of weird words and he, he was a weird person, but I just thought, Oh, you can do things that don't make any sense, but that make sense. And you can make them make sense. Yeah. Because writing isn't just about using words that you already know. It's about communicating. And sometimes when you communicate, you don't use actual words. Yeah. Or you make up things. And that's okay. And that, like, blew my mind. And um, I, I just, I loved it. So, again, I took a literature class at the, at the co-op. I never spoke in class because I was... I just, I was very shy and had terrible self-esteem. And, um, but I read, I read the entire book. Yeah. Even the stuff I didn't have to read. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was the first time I read, um, a Sherlock Holmes story. Then I fell in love with Sherlock Holmes. And then I've read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories, like, <laughs> multiple times. So, yeah. Nice. Definitely, Definitely a little, still a little bit nerdy, for sure. Yeah, very cool. So it's something that you always enjoyed doing, but then <clears throat> kind of took it to that next, as you started getting into more literature and stuff like that, really expanded your horizons on, yeah. on what's cap- possible. Yeah, and then um, when it came time for college, I thought, okay, um, I'll be a nurse because I, I care about people and I want to help people. And I got great grades in high school in science and everything. And so I did, I did like, I still liked reading and writing, but I just thought, oh, I'll, I'll be a, a nurse. 
that did not last very long at all. <laughs> I took one chemistry class. I don't know how I got a D in that class. <laughs> I should have had, I shouldn't have passed. Um, it was the most horrible class I've ever taken in my life. I didn't understand any of it. My brain was like, no, this is not for you. Um, the teacher was absolutely awful. He ended up getting fired. So that probably had something to do with it. Um, cause I did, yep. I did running start. So yep. I was taking, I, yeah. And, um, taking that chemistry class, I was like, I can't do this. So then I thought, okay, I, I really like nutrition. I'll be a nutritionist. But then as I started thinking about that, I, I realized I'd probably just be spending my whole life telling people what to do and none of them would do it. Right. Which is such an oldest child thing to think about, <laughs> I think. And, um, <laughs> and I thought, no, I can't, I won't be a nutritionist. And then I went on this, um, at 18, I went on this missions trip to El Salvador and it wasn't with a group or anything. My family knew missionaries down there and Mm -hmm. I went and stayed with them for four months. And while I was down there, I was like, what, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? And then it just kind of came to me one day, you should be an English major. Mm -hmm. You love reading. I was, I was like reading the Chronicles of Narnia while this came to me, like you love words, you love writing, you love British literature. You like, this just fills up your soul. You should be an English major. And Mm -hmm. I thought this is going to be a hard sell to my parents because I don't want to be a teacher. Yeah. For sure. Don't want to be a teacher. (laughs) And I just knew that I couldn't, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. like that lifestyle. And, um, but I do for sure have like an entrepreneurial spirit and so I just thought, okay, I'll write books. And, but I was terrible. I was a terrible writer. Even, um, I came, I came back home for the mission trip, went to Scouter Valley College, got my associate's degree, took all the writing classes I could. And I just, I would, I did well in them, but I was like, it wasn't easy. Yeah. And part of me was like, why am I doing this? None of my teachers told me I was a good writer. None of them like encouraged me. <laughs> Not like nobody said anything great to me. Like. It was just kind of like, well, you know, she tries. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I just, I don't know. I didn't, for some reason, all of my like shyness and insecurities, I was just, it was just like, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. And it, I never, <clears throat> I never second guessed it. Yeah. And, um, and then I went to college for a year in Massachusetts, and that was a crazy experience. That college, community college, did not prepare me for that school. Like, it was next level. I, um, the teachers did not care about you. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> they were, I mean, they probably did. It was probably just my perception. But they were there to teach you to be a very good thinker and a very good writer. Mm-hmm. And... I, I always tell people, it, it was called Gordon College. I tell, I tell people, Gordon's where I learned how to think. <laughs> and then when I came home, I, I only went there for a year. I, I did not like it there. It was horribly cold. <laughs> and um, the whole time, it's, it's a terrible thing to say, but this will just give you an insight into my perception of the world. The whole time I was there, I just thought, oh my gosh, no wonder all of the pilgrims died because it's horrible <laughs> here. <laughs> 
like, if they had just landed in, like, South Carolina instead of here, it would have been such a different history. <laughs> See, I told you it's terrible. But it was literally so cold. It, 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 it like, rained ice. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple students the year I was there who broke their legs just walking to, to class or their, or their wrists because they would slip on ice. There was, like, two inches of ice just yeah. covering everything. So I hated it. Um, and, uh, but it was extremely academically challenging. Mm-hmm. A couple of my professors also taught at Harvard and they let us all know, I also teach at Harvard. I'm like, okay, that means this is going to be a really interesting class. <laughs> um, but it challenged me a lot. Yeah. And it taught me to ask a lot of questions and that it's okay to ask, it should be okay to ask any and every question because mm-hmm. questions aren't the problem. Right. And I had never really, growing up kind of so sh- sheltered, I just didn't think about a lot of hard questions. And when you're reading literature, you're reading stuff, you're reading very raw stuff. A lot of it's like, a lot of it they never intended to be published. A yeah. lot of it's journals or their poems from their diaries or letters. Yeah. And so you're reading this stuff and it's so raw and so um, just their these people's lives just across history, the things that they've had to go through and the questions that they ask, you realize it's okay to ask the hard questions about... Yeah whatever god or faith or your family or how the world works and it's okay to challenge things yeah and i just i loved that yeah and um that's one thing i will say for that college um i never i never once had a professor like make fun of a question or or like undermine a question or make it seem silly yeah and i i love that yeah it was great and so uh, after Gordon, I came back, I transferred to Northwest University in Kirkland, and I tell people, that's finally where I learned how to write. After yep. all that time, <laughs> that's where I learned how to write. I just, I had a couple of great writing professors, mm-hmm. and I had never been in a place where they let you revise work. You would, It was like, you write this, you turn it in, that's your final grade. Yeah. But writing is editing. Right. It's this, it, it, it's like... I don't know. It, you can't have one without the other, right. really. And so being, being um, in classes that allowed me that freedom, it really allowed me to learn how to write better. Yeah. 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 That's great. Awesome. So how did that lead to, um, well, I guess, what was your first writing project that you ended up doing then? Um, gosh, so... After I graduated from college, I I ended up getting married like a year after I graduated. Mm-hmm. But um, I would start. I started books so many times. Yeah. And then um, just worked like different random jobs, and I I had a lot of like personal healing to go through, mm-hmm. and very much struggled with self esteem for a really long time. And I guess I probably still do in some ways, but. Um, I tried, I like 
tried getting some articles published in different magazines. I thought, oh, I'll just start small. Um, and nothing really ever came of it. And then I got kind of discouraged. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, I didn't really try anything. And yeah. then for a long time, I also just thought self-published authors are just like losers who aren't good writers <laughs> and couldn't get published traditionally. <laughs> so <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, so that's what I genuinely thought for a long time. I was like, self-published authors are just not good writers. But then um, the self-publishing world kind of grew a lot in the last 10 years. Yeah. And um, I, I started... Um, I started out, so, like, five years ago, I I started out with blogging, mm-hmm. and that was a great outlet for me. Yeah. A really good outlet. It gave me a lot of practice. It gave me practice with, like, hitting that publish button and just letting it go out into the world, and h- however it's received, it's received. Yeah. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Most people loved it. and But it kind of helped build up my... my my skin a little bit, like give me a little bit of a thicker skin yeah. because it is, it is scary to put, put stuff out there. And, yeah. um, I think I needed that kind of slow introduction to it. Right. So by the time I got to a book, I published like probably a hundred to 150 things and written for other blogs as well. And so wh- that was, that was a good like practice for me. Yeah. 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 So how, what was your, was the first book you wrote, uh, or what was the first book you wrote then? So the first book I wrote was my curriculum. Okay. And there are two reasons that I chose to do that. So, and both were very intentional. One was I just wanted to learn the process of self-publishing and two, I didn't want that, um, that initial learning of the process to be with like, my baby, like something that I had spent like years on. Yeah. And so I thought, what can I, what can I put together that has value, but isn't like going to take me a year to write. And so I thought I'll just, I'll put together a creative writing curriculum and it'll give me great practice with like the editing, the formatting, cover design, um, just, thinking, uh, it's like a creative writing prompt book. So my husband and I had so much fun sitting down and thinking of fun creative writing prompts. And then I wanted to add as much value to the book as possible. And Mm so I put in like uh, writing tips and and grammar, like cheat sheets and um, just as much stuff as I could to add value because yeah. I'm, I'm an unknown. There's a ton of curriculum out there. Yeah. And so I just thought as much value as I can add to this little book and not, and not, and keep it kind of on the lower end price wise. Yeah. It's just more important that I get out there and like kind of have a little bit of something established before I publish my first novel. Yeah. And so that was really important to me. And then also, the more books you publish on Amazon, the more it helps the algorithm as well. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that's another little boost to it. Um, it was a very good learning experience. I learned a ton about just how to self-publish a book. And um, and it it's actually my um, best-selling book. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Yeah. 
it's um, really funny, but it, it just goes over really well. It's very simple. And I kind of share like about in the book, I tell people it's not necessarily about what you write. It's more important to just be creative and get the words down. Yeah. And you can go back in and make it pretty at the end. And I, I kind of compare it to like a contractor. You get, you get to do the fun stuff, like building the walls and putting in the windows, but you also have to do the not fun stuff, like sweeping up sawdust and picking up the nails that fall. And, and, uh, that's kind of what editing is like. You get to do the, the pretty stuff and make it look nice, but you also have to go in and make sure, you know, you use then and then correctly and those <laughs> types of things. Right. And it's all just part of the process to get that finished, like complete look. Yeah. Nice. So when did you actually start on your first novel then? So I started on my first novel. It took me two years to write it. <clears throat> okay. Start to finish. Um, 18 months of writing, six months of editing. Um, and then I, so I published it and I published it last year. Um, the story for the book is well, first, what's the okay. uh, title of the book? So the title of the book? Look. Yeah, okay. It's, yeah. So it's called Until the Darkness Turns to Light. Okay. It's a murder mystery okay. that's set in the Pacific Northwest and okay. based off several true stories. And it tackles human trafficking at its core. That's okay. kind of what the entire story is about. Yeah. It's also loosely based off of part of the story. Part of the backstory of the book is loosely based off of a murder that actually happened in Stanwood in, I think it was 1997 or 1998. There was, uh, her name was Ashley Jones, and she was a babysitter who was murdered while she was babysitting. Yikes. And, um, yeah, you can look it up. Uh, and I, I was getting close to babysitting age, I think, when that happened. <laughs> oh, no. So my parents were like, you're never babysitting for anybody. Um, and I, I, I'm actually friends with somebody who knew the murderer. I don't know his name. It doesn't matter. And was like chased by him with an ax growing up. So whoever that guy is, he obviously had some issues. Yep. But that story just kind of always stuck with me. And so I, I used it as inspiration for part of. There's two simultaneous stories that go on in, in the book. Yeah. Um, one present day, one from, like, the late 90s. And um, it's set in Stanwood. Part of it's set in Stanwood and Kameno. And I use that story for a big part of the inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. So then you also mentioned that there's a part on human trafficking. How did that kind of uh, – what kind of prompted you to tackle that side of the subject? And what, what – yeah, what kind of drove you in that direction? So there's a couple reasons. One, I thought if I'm going to write a book and nobody knows who I am, it should be about something that really matters. Um, Maybe I've kind of made a name for myself online of talking about things that people don't like to talk about. Mm -hmm. And um, human trafficking for me has just been one of those things that it's sort of people like know it exists and it's obviously with like the movie that came out this summer and everything um, uh, I can't think of what it's called right now but um, people are 
a little more like aware right now. Yeah. But I first heard about human trafficking when I was 14 at a youth retreat. And uh, there were some people there just talking about how they were working with this organization called International Justice Mission, IJM. Yeah. And how they were helping them go into brothels in Asian countries and collect evidence. And I just thought it was, I was like 14 maybe. And I just thought this is, I couldn't imagine like a world where this happened. Right. And um, it just, it kind of like tore apart everything that I knew about the world hearing these people speak, but I believed them. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, it kind of just, it, it just really impacted me. And I just thought this is like, one of the most evil things that a human being can do to another human being. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I dealt with a lot of, I've dealt with a lot of health issues over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And part of me has wanted to just be more involved, like in a physical sense with organizations or with raising awareness or fundraising or just whatever I can do. Yeah. But I've been very limited. And mm -hmm. so um, writing, I was like, writing is what I love. It's what I'm passionate about. I love telling stories. I believe stories are the most powerful form of communication that we have. Mm -hmm. And if you can use story to, to raise awareness and bring something to light, why, like, why not? Yeah. And so I, um, I had actually been... I had started writing a book that was the story of my life. And the more that I started writing it, the more I felt very extremely unsettled about publishing it. Yeah. And um, I got pretty far into it, like 20 or 30,000 words. And um, which uh, most novels are about, well, on the lower end, like 70 Okay. Uh, probably like an average of a hundred, maybe hundred thousand words. So okay. I was making good progress yeah. in this book and I just felt so unsettled. And so one day, um, like I just prayed about it and I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I know, I know that I have stories in me. I know that I want to write stories. And if this isn't the, the story that I'm supposed to be writing right now, I need, I, I need <clears throat> God to give me a story. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of, like, left it there. Yeah. And that night, I had the most insanely vivid dream. And I woke up in the morning, and not to be, like, over-spiritual or anything, but I just felt God say, here's your story. Yeah. And I started writing that week, and that dream became the first five chapters of my book. Okay. And everything else just kind of went from there. Yeah. So it, it was kind of, it was very crazy to me, but, and I've, I've heard other people say like, Oh, this book that I wrote is based off of a dream. Um, uh, the writer of twilight said that, which I was like, Oh boy. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I was based off of a dream that I had and, um, it was a very vivid dream. So 
the rest of the story, I had to kind of figure out as I went, Yeah, which was challenging, actually. It's part of what took so long, because I yeah. kind of just had to sit with it and sit with the characters. And then, um, and then this whole backstory came, and I don't know. I, I love how it turned out, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, so in, in this, um, you mentioned that you, you heard someone speak on, on human trafficking stuff when you were 14. Um, but as you were continuing to write the book, did you do additional research into this? And oh, kind yes. Of all, okay. Yeah. So actually in the back of the book, mm. um, there's an entire essay where okay. I kind of compile all my research. Um, I, I learned a lot of things. I learned that port cities in general have a very high rate of human trafficking because right. people are brought into the country. It's estimated that close to 60,000 people are brought into the U.S. for human trafficking purposes every year. Mm. Most of them, like 70% of them, are usually women for the purposes of sex trafficking. Yeah. Um, the rest are... Uh, typically for like work, but that's actually less common. Some some people say those statistics are not even close to, to right, accurate. Right. Um, it, it's way more common for people to be sex trafficked than for exploited for work. Yeah. Um, the the port of Seattle and and the port of any city website is actually a very good resource. They talk about human trafficking statistics on those websites. The port of Seattle says that 500 to 700 kids are trafficked every year in King County alone. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I share several stories in here. Um, one I'll say, I'll tell briefly. There is a story in 2014 of a doctor. He was an anesthesiologist working at Overlake hospital and he made anywhere from twenty to forty-five thousand dollars a month, and he, he was trafficking women out of, um, like, high, high, high-end condos in downtown Bellevue. He was selling women that he somehow got from Southeast Asia. He was selling them for two hundred dollars an hour, and he came under suspicion because it was so stupid. He. Um, I mean, it's good that he got caught for <laughs> sure, but it's like he de he deposited. $500,000 of cash on top of his earnings and it's like, you know, suspicious. And so um, he got caught, obviously. And it's like, did he, it's, um, it's like he, you went to school for like 12 years to make really good money and you're, and this is what you decide to do with your life. Yeah. And so it really, it, it really is sobering to think that it can be and can involve anybody. Right. And a lot of times when we think of trafficking, we think of the international stuff. Right. We think of like um, brothels in Cambodia or, or Thailand. And we think of like women being shipped in across the border or something like mm -hmm. that. But that's, that's only a very small portion of what it is. It's, it's any, any selling of a, of a human. So yeah. that, that can be pictures or videos that can be um, coercion. And it, it's very, you can be trafficked without even knowing that you're being trafficked mm. because of how the internet works. Yeah. And so there's just, there's so much out there and there's such a correlation between 
pornography and human trafficking and just the, that entire industry yeah. um, is very exploitive and dehumanizing. And um, the connection between the two is very sobering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I know that I-5... I mean, any, again, any port, like you mentioned, or, like, interstate. But I know that in, like, Burlington, Mount Vernon, like, there's a, there there has been broken down large rings. And yes. there continues to this day being yes. a very, very hot spot. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I, um, I also met with two detectives when I was um, uh, researching for this book. Um and just interviewed them for, they were very kind. They let me interview them for several hours and just, they told me stories of human traffickers that they've encountered. Um, anywhere from some guy sitting in a dark apartment running some sort of ring behind a computer to like women, you know, disappearing. Like uh, I heard one story in Mount Vernon of a girl who was on vacation with her family. They were uh, renting a house at Big Lake. She thought she'd been communicating with like a 17, 16-year-old boy who ended up being a human trafficker. She went missing. Her family was like, "She, there's something really wrong here. We're, we're just on vacation. She said she was going for a walk. She never came back. And the officer who responded could have said, oh you know, we're going to wait 24 hours to file a missing person report, you know, the, the thing you hear. But he just had a feeling something just seemed very off about it. They ended up finding her cell phone at the Smoky Point rest area, and they found her like a day or two later at a hotel in SeaTac. Wow. And she was, they were getting ready to ship her out of the state. And he was like, if we if we had waited that twenty four hours, we probably wouldn't have ever found her. Right. And it wow. it was crazy. Yeah. And that ended up being connected to a ring down in like the Kent SeaTac kind of area. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's um I, I've interviewed um what is their name? I should know them. Another uh social justice, but they are um, focused on the the prevention of because they're like there's a lot of great organizations that are working yes. on the post of that, but um, they work on um, going into schools and groups um, of all different places to just talk on it. Like this That's is what great. you need to be aware of. This is what you you know be careful when you're online. Be careful when you're texting. Be careful. However, you are throwing yourself into places. Yes. Um, Building that awareness. What are the signs to look for? What are the things to be aware of? Yeah. Um, That's uh, so good. Because, and unfortunately, I I interviewed them post-COVID, and they said COVID really shut down a lot of the programs because they were in schools. And and so um, I think they they are probably becoming more known again. But, um, yeah, that's been something, um, you know, and I would say one thing that... I feel like the parents of today, not all of them, but <clears throat> we're becoming more aware and more intelligent or, or smart in how we have these things. Like, we're not, it's not that there's, um, I don't know how to, I'm trying to word it in a way that makes sense, but <clears throat> our, the kids of today are better, have a better BS meter 
than I think we've had in a long time. Yeah. And, and parents of the past, when I talk to older generations of parents, they don't understand. They expect there to be this boogeyman, like a very, I don't know, like they're, the things they're afraid of for their kids, like what if they, they do this or what if they do that, are not the realistic things of like, it could be the people they're messaging on Facebook. Yeah. Versus, well, they can't go into chat rooms because those are the, no, chat rooms don't exist anymore. That's Facebook. That's Instagram. That's yeah. texting. Yeah, for um, sure. And so like, there's still this delay of, of some of these parents that we talked to that are still kind of thinking in the old generation of, well, I don't want this to happen or this to happen. Like, no, that's not what you need to be worried about. Yeah. I think just your child having social media at all mm-hmm. is it automatically puts them at risk. Right. And, and the idea that people have of like, well, we don't want them to go. I don't know. Just the, I guess the way they're like, well, I don't want my kid to go to the mall or I don't want my kid to walk by them, you know, walk, go with their mm-hmm. friends to X, Y, Z. Cause what if they do drugs or get into trouble or drink alcohol? It's like, yeah, but you give them a phone and you let them sit in the room for three hours Yeah, with no supervision. Like that's, that is far more dangerous than yes. letting them walk down to the mall where they're probably not going to run into anybody because they're going down with their friend and yeah. like, you know, so I don't know. It, the, the people focus on the wrong things and they yes. hear the wrong things. I feel like a lot of times. Yeah. So much damage can happen with a phone. Mm-hmm. With an yeah, um, I will say just as a little plug, I don't know anything about Androids, but iPhones have really good parental settings. Mm-hmm. You can you can block specific websites. You can um, control <clears throat> all sorts of things, and that's just on the phone. That's not mm-hmm. even with having to like. It, there's tons of apps that you can download as well, but just on the phone itself, you can you can restrict a lot right yeah yeah no there's definitely a lot of options out there um on iphones and ios and yes um, being able to do that so yeah yeah just you know keep being aware of all the different uh pieces along that um so then when it came to launching your book um and and getting it out there how did that process go and how has that continued to kind of go um to present day so Prior to launching my book, I listened to a ton of podcasts. Um, there is this self-publishing company. It was called Self-Publishing, or what was it called? It, they just changed their name. I think their new name is selfpublishing.com. Okay. And um, they have a book. Um, my brain is not working today, so I can't think no, of any good. of the titles. But um, his name is Chan- Chandler Bolt, mm-hmm. and he has a book that walks you through self-publishing. He gives you like a step-by-step guide. <clears throat> and he says to, that you can do the whole thing in 90 days. I didn't that. <laughs> And I think he's talking more about like a nonfiction book where you're like, oh, this is how to train your dog or this is how to, I don't know, organize your house for homeschooling or I don't know, something yeah. like kind of more practical. like a, a practical like how, how to or like yeah. a mini memoir almost. Yeah. Not like a full novel. Because most of the people who publish books with him, they're like twenty to fifty thousand words, like okay. on the smaller end for sure. Yep. Um, but so I didn't take that advice, but I took everything else that he said to do, and I did it. Yeah. Um. So I created a launch group on Facebook. Yeah. Um. I 
set a date, which was terrifying, um, to pick a date and be like, okay, I have to have this done by this date. Um, the last month of the book, I think I was writing like eight to 12 hours a day. (laughs) I was, I, the book was done, but I was just editing and formatting and I, there's a, there's, um, I designed the cover and I had no money to pay somebody to design a cover. So I was like, may the Lord be with me (laughs) while I designed this cover. Um, and uh, I downloaded this. I bought um, a writing software called Atticus, mm-hmm. and it helps you format your book. Um, and it's kind of like a newer software. So they were like, if you buy it now, you get everything that we have plus all other future updates. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, sold. I'll, I'll get it. Um, so that was, I couldn't have done it without that software. Yeah. And then I also bought the, like, best level of Grammarly that I could. Um, <laughs> yep. Do you know that software? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that helped catch so much stuff. Um, it it doesn't, it's not helpful for cre- when you write creatively that yeah. like you write the way that people talk, not necessarily proper English. Right. So it will, it'll say that all of that's a mistake. Right. Which is fine. You just ignore it. But I, and then I also hired an editor to read the book I like edited it, put every single chapter through Scrivener and Grammarly, which mm-hmm. took like at least a full day yeah. to do that for each chapter. Yeah. And then sent everything to an editor, had her reread it. And then there were still mistakes after I published it, which was humbling because I didn't want there to be even one mistake. But there was because yeah. you can only catch so much. But I, I there might be a, one or two or... Oh, hopefully there's like only like one or two in there. But um, I had people, friends read it and they would te- like send me a picture of every mistake. And I was like, this is so humbling, but thank you. I need to fix. And then you can just go right back in, fix it all, re-upload your new document. Oh, cool. So, and it, it takes like, I think it's like live within a couple hours. Nice. So you're just uploading a new PDF and I would just, I did that. I probably did that a hundred times. I'm yeah. not kidding you. Yeah. It was so much work. I, the, the launch day, I was like so exhausted. I was like, okay, here we go. And, um, I, you, I also put it for free on Kindle and got like hundreds and hundreds of downloads, okay. which is great. Cause you want reviews, right? Reviews sell books. That's yeah. like the motto. I can like just chant that all day long reviews sell books you want to get as many reviews as possible and so in the first month I thought okay maybe maybe I'll get like 25 maybe I ended up getting 50 in my first month and um and then it it very much slowed down from there um I think I'm like getting close to 90 now but it is extremely rare for a self-published book to get over 100 reviews yeah if you get over 100 reviews that's like really impressive yeah so I'm getting close yeah and um, but something, something that happened after I published my book, I, um, published it in July and then just was like, okay, I'm ready to start my next book. And I did, I started writing my next book like a month later. Yeah. Um, because, um, this is book one in a trilogy. Okay. And in my mind and, um, 
I started writing and then I was like, I am so exhausted. Like that just took like everything out of me yeah. to publish this book. And so I was like, I'm just going to take a little break. And then I ended up um, going on vacation, breaking my foot in four places, Ow. which was more painful than childbirth. Um, it was horrible. And then two weeks after that, I got in a car accident and got a pretty bad concussion. So I haven't written very much this year. Yeah. And one of the best ways to recover from a concussion, I learned, is movement, like mind-body connection, gentle movement, yeah. which I could not do because I had a broken foot. And so I was non-weight-bearing for 12 weeks mm -hmm. and then basically had to just... I mean, it's a little bit of an exaggeration to say I had to learn to walk again because I didn't exactly have to, but it, I limped for about six months. Yeah, your brain, yeah. Yeah, and now it's fine. But um, yeah, that was, a, that was a crazy experience. Yeah. I was, just, I was just in bed for like three months. Yeah. It was really, yeah. it, was, it, was very, um, it was very hard to go from like working, <clears throat> writing, uh, like playing piano at church, I, I couldn't I couldn't go anywhere because I was so um, like overstimulated by just colors. Even for Christmas, I was like, "You guys, I I can't like decorate. Yeah, it's just too much. My I was so easily overstimulated. So my poor family, but um, we made it through. Yeah. And I I think I'm still kind of healing from the concussion because I don't feel like my creativity is fully coming back. Yeah, but. I have great chiropractors yeah. and um, they're doing all this brain stuff on me and red light laser therapy and all this stuff. And yeah. um, they're like, it's going to come back. Yeah. Don't worry. It'll come back. Yeah. I'm like, okay. So I'm just, I'm just trying to trust the process of healing and let yeah. my brain do what it needs to do and not push anything. Yeah. And um, yeah, like remembering words details, that kind of thing. It's been, it's kind of like, you know, pregnancy brain or whatever right. that you have or whatever. It's like that, but for a, for like for a year. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, yeah. it, it just, it is what it is. I'm, I learned a lot. Right. In the, in the suffering. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, you got this book published, um, and it, and that's out there now, and you you want to start on the next one, but you haven't quite been able to do that yet. Yeah. Um, but for people who are maybe looking at the process or, or looking at the idea of book writing, what would you tell them? What would you give them as a, a uh, advice? Yeah, I would say you do you. There are so many people out there who are like, you need to wake up at five thirty and start writing, and you need to get in so many words a day and blah, blah, blah. And then they, they're like, oh yeah, because that's what Stephen King does. And he just pumps out books and, and it's like, yeah, okay. Stephen King is like his own, he's like his own animal, but not everybody's brain works that way. Not everybody's creative in the same way. And that is okay. Yeah. It's totally fine if it takes you two years to write a book and it takes Stephen King three months. Right. Like it's fine. And, um, um, comparison really is the thief of joy in, yeah. in creative endeavors. Whatever I would say for sure that if you're going to write um, fiction, have it be a story that matters. Mm. Because 
being a self-published writer is hard enough. And um, the whole, just the whole journey of writing, editing, publishing, promoting, all of it, it's so much work that if you don't have a story that's worth telling, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. None yeah. of that work matters. So if your story is, you know, something silly or something nobody's going to care about, you're going to do all that work for nothing. Yeah. And there are, there's so, there's so many bad books out there. There really just are books that nobody can finish or whatever. Write a book that people want to finish. Yeah. Write a book where every chapter is like, I need to know what's going to happen next. Or I, because you want people to fall in love with the characters. Yeah. And you want them to be able to see them, like see their faces. And if people can't do that, yeah, it doesn't matter how much work you put into the process. The the characters end up becoming their own people. Yeah. And they're going to live inside someone's head forever. And until they just, I don't know, forget about them over decades or whatever. Because I've read a ton of books. I'm sure I don't remember all the details. But yeah. the good books, they stay with you. Yeah. And so you have to really consider that. And um, I just think that that's very true for fiction. Nonfiction is a little bit different. Um, I think if you're going to write nonfiction, you need to fill a gap that, that hasn't been filled yet. Yeah. Or you just need to add so much value. Like my creative writing book, there's so many creative writing books. So many. There's so many creative writing prompt books. Yeah. What makes mine different isn't necessarily the prompts. It's everything else. Yeah. And the price. The price, I've kept it low. Yeah. And so um, you're like, no, like, know who you are. Yeah. Know where you're at. Yeah. If you're not, and seriously, if you can't take, it's hard, it's hard. It's like, it sucks <laughs> to hear. But if you can't take, if you can't take, like, people giving you genuine feedback, that's a hard, that's a rough place to be in, man. Yeah. Um, it, cause it hurts. Like it hurts to hear, Oh, this character is super lame or I don't like the hero of your story or whatever. Like right. it matters. So yeah. yeah, you just be humble, do the work. And there's, there's a bunch of podcasts out there that, that you can listen to that'll walk you through the whole process. Yeah. But honestly, I think, um, self-publishing is kind of just getting started and um, I think it's going to explode Yeah, uh, even more than it already has Yeah, because just it's just the nature of <clears throat> I don't even know maybe the just the nature of capitalism but um, people people who have like an entrepreneurial spirit they don't want to wait Right. They don't want to wait for somebody else to give them permission to do what they yeah. want to do. So just, it's like start, it's like writing a book is kind of like starting your own business. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. like, you want to do this? Don't wait to get hired by some company to whatever, do, you know, make soap or whatever. Just make your own soap. Yeah. And so that's kind of what self-publishing a book is like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've seen that. And I mean, especially lately, it's happened it's really starting to hit in the music industry that the yes. big gatekeepers are being yep. skirted around. And I think we're seeing that in the publishing as well. Yes. Uh, they've been in these industries that are just uh, old giants that have been there forever, but they're 
the 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 things have gotten out of. I can even even actually looking at like the the strikes that just happened with the the writers guilds and the actors. Yeah. Like we're just seeing that things have been out of balance, and now it's at a point where people realize like it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, we can actually stand up for ourselves and, and say what we think we deserve and what we need and yeah um and there's going to be problems with that too there's going to be issues that we find um along the way but yeah um yeah i definitely think there's been a, a changing of the guard in, in a lot of different industries yeah i saw a video popped up on my um instagram feed yesterday of a tv writer i was like i don't who is this guy but i don't i don't even follow him but he's like okay these are my checks that i made this month from like tv shows that i've worked on he's opening them up they're all for like less than a hundred dollars. Yeah. It's like you literally without this person's brain and him writing down the words, like this episode wouldn't even exist. Yeah. And he makes like 75 bucks. Right. Off. Like what? That's a lot of writing to do to make a living right there. That's a (laughs) lot of writing. (laughs) So yeah, that makes sense with, yeah, people. And, um, I definitely see that with music. People, self-publishing their own music, recording it, putting it on Spotify, marketing themselves on YouTube and Instagram and all the, all the different things. I I don't have TikTok because I'm so old. (laughs) I just don't care. (laughs) I I, I did for a little while and then I was like, this is sucking my brain cells out of my body. So I deleted it. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. Yeah. So the first one is what purchase of a hundred dollars or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? Okay. I thought about this. I have an answer and it's so, it just is what it is. Okay. I, um, I bought like this homemade soap and deodorant from this company, but in Oregon and I love it. Like it smells so good and it's, uh, it like makes me so happy. Good. Yeah. That's awesome. No, that's it was I, the best. Yeah. I love the, the hundred dollar limit because it, it forces you to, and it's usually like an everyday thing that you're like, Oh yeah, I just picked this up and now it's like one of my favorite things. Yeah, and, totally. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? Um, I'd probably have to say my friends, um, Amanda and Lewis, they've just been with me through everything, mm-hmm. everything I've ever been through. They know everything about my life and they still love me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Uh, this is a fill in the blank question. I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank. Um, discover an undiscovered sea monster. Cause I'm convinced that they exist and I know, I know they're out there. Yes. Well, you have a high chance because there's, (laughs) the ocean is so vastly undiscovered. Yeah. All right. Uh, Who's an interesting or fascinating person that I should interview next? So I don't actually have a name for you. And, but you did, and you did say you had interviewed like first responders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I was just thinking if you're interested more in the whole like human trafficking, it might be really interesting to interview like a local detective. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. And lastly, what piece of advice would you give your 20 year old self? Yeah. Um, I would say do it afraid. Do it afraid. Cause everything, everything's scary the first time you do it or 
the first few times that you do it, whether it's like in your early 20s, like talking to a cute boy or going for a job interview or just doing something creative and putting it out into the world, it's all scary. Yeah. And you, the, the, the fear doesn't go away. You just decide to get braver. Yeah. So that's what I'd say. Just do it afraid. Even if you're shaking, just do it. Yeah. Because eventually you won't be afraid anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun, actually. Good. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Alicia Luca Dean for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to CaminoCommons.com slash podcast or check the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.